coming up on this episode of Cancer Chat. Just having been in that um, tense situation of, of being in storms and not knowing what would come next and really thinking that our climb was over and that we were not going to get a weather window and not summit, actually having gotten to the summit was very surreal. Hi, and welcome to Cancer Chat. On today's show, our host, Dawn Brazel, visits with everyday Everest founder, Cokie Cox, at her farm in Alwindall, South Carolina, to talk about a recent summit of Mount Everest and how that translates into cancer awareness and prevention. Enjoy the chat. Welcome back and congratulations. Uh, what was it like summiting? Oh, it was a long journey. <laughs> I, think, I think most expect that answer. Um, but I'll tell you, and I don't, I have not exactly perfected these words yet, but summit day actually was not the hardest day, um, as I imagined it would be. What surprised you about the climb? What I thought would be the hardest part was not the hardest part. And what I didn't anticipate to be the hardest part was the hardest part. I thought that the, the physicality of, of scaling the world's largest mountain would be the hardest part, and that was the easiest part. Uh, the hardest part was sometimes having to be still and being stuck in a tent during storms and not being able to move my body when I wanted to move my body. and. Um, in, in night, you know, sleeping, you know, in a tent, um, whether by myself or with climbing mates, uh, just nighttime and the idea of not knowing what the next day brought was, was really, um, was the toughest part. And the physical climbing piece was what I thought was going to be the hardest part. And thankfully, um, thankfully I was well-trained and that part came, came somewhat easy to me. So I don't know the exact number of days, but let's just round and say 60. It was just shy of, of 60. Um, it might've been in the way of 55 days. Uh, my hope was to be home for my first wedding anniversary on May 30th. And I did that by the hair on my chinny chin chin. Um, so, and part of that was, like I said, um, trekking up to base camp with loved ones uh, and a, the better part of five to six weeks of that was climbing through the icefall and training and moving towards the summit. My favorite part, gosh, um, my favorite part would be when I arrived at base camp with my loved ones and, and my daughter. So was it the summit? It, the summit was was amazing and was very special. It was surreal because having been trapped in a weather system for multiple days on end, um, just having been in that um, tense situation of, of being in storms and not knowing what would come next and really thinking that our climb was over and that we were not gonna get a weather window and not summit, actually having gotten to the summit was very surreal. Now, you showed me some photos at the top. Tell me about the special symbols you had with you, what you did at the top. Mm. So I climbed, which is pretty um, unusual for me because I usually don't climb with, with jewelry, but um, my mother sent me away with a very special cross uh, the day that I departed for Nepal. And she's had this cross for quite some time. 
So that was a very special thing for me because my mom was prayer warrioring here in the States and, and rallying, um, rallying those to help me get through hard, tough spots. And then the other is a vintage locket that has a picture of my girls in it. And I knew, um, you know, when I committed to the trip a couple years ago, I sort of had this presence of mind to say, what is the talisman? What can I take that's my girls that I can have on me at all time just to keep them at the forefront of my mind of, of coming home safely? And so I, I wore my locket and this cross my mother gave me um, every day of the climb. Yeah, there had to be tough moments. What were the hardest the hardest moments were some of just the dark, still nights um, and the dark nights with 40 mile an hour winds and storms all around us and really not knowing were we going to be able to progress to Camp 4 and then to the summit. Um, just the unknowns of having put in 50 plus days and, and all the love and care and support from home and just the idea of not being able to capture the summit because of weather was really tough, that idea of it. Because I knew on the whole of it that, that um, physically I was ready to summit the mountain. Um, but, you know, that's only one tiny piece of it. It's, you know, you've got to have um, weather and other strokes of luck by not getting, you know, sick on mountain and other things, you know, base camp in the mountain was fraught with COVID issues, as, as most were aware. And thankfully, it did not um, affect any of our any of our climbing mates, but still just general wellness on the mountain, something can strike you at any time. So it's just always the other unknowns that you really don't have control over. So what's it like going over the ladders, looking down into the crevasse? You typically don't look down. <laughs> <laughs> That's first year, You right? look ahead and you just cross them one rung at a time. And, you know, in, in mentioning that I made five passes through the icefall, what's interesting is the first pass through the icefall, we maybe went over three to four ladders. But by the last time we were moving through the icefall, we might have been going over three times that amount. So the icefall is changing and shifting and maneuvering. So that too also offered additional practice. So it was really neat how that the design of all that, that, okay, we only had to go over a few, a couple, but, um, as you know, I practiced here in the backyard on a ladder and I will tell you something that helped tremendously. Just knowing the placement of my crampons on the rungs and being able to connect, um, that sort of not hand eye, but being able to connect that, that, that practice um, really helped. Was there a time you were afraid? There was, there was a time I was afraid. Um, ironically, the time that I should have been most afraid, um, thankfully instincts just, just stepped in and just wouldn't allow me to be afraid. And I, I was in the ice fall at one point where um, I was moving across an ice bridge with my Sherpa and when he hit the next fixed line was my cue to, to move over the ice bridge and move to the next fixed line. And adjacent to him where he was fixed in, an approximate 30-foot tower, ice tower, just right in front of us disappeared. And it was at that moment when I saw my Sherpa's eyes <laughs> is when I knew 
this is not good. Uh, and what was interesting is when that ice tower disappeared, and it was probably 30 by 30. I mean, it was a large structure. Um, there was no noise. It was a silent disappearing of a very large ice structure. So I knew... Are we talking about an ice sheet or, or what? A large block of ice, probably 30 by 20. And it just cracked off and disappeared. And you would think that that would, you know, something in my mind, when I saw his eyes, I thought to myself, hmm, that wasn't good, let's move quickly. But I wouldn't, I didn't let myself get afraid at that moment. One of the scariest moments was actually in a tent at uh, Camp 3. I didn't, I was not truly aware of the landscape at Camp 3, and it's pretty desolate. And, um, you know, tents, you know, falling off of <laughs> sides of mountains, and, you know, you, this, the space is very limited there. And I didn't know the landscape because both times I moved into 3, we had... Um, pretty big storm, so I didn't really know the landscape around us. And while you really got accustomed to hearing avalanches through the night, whether you were at base camp, camp one, camp two, camp three, um, I, I, there was a pretty large avalanche um, on our last push up the mountain at camp three. And I had this sense of like, I, I don't know what my landscape is around me, so I really don't know where this is coming from. So that was really the only time, um, you know, I was woken from my sleep with that noise and I'd let my guard down and it was just comfortably sleeping. And that was probably the scariest moment. And how did that work out? Just fine. Just fine. Uh, thankfully, um, guides um, have had our guide, you know, has had many years of experience of, of tent placement. And it's not to say that, you know, some have not you know, had troubles with avalanches, but um, for the most part, I feel like the placement of all of our um, camps and our tents, um, we were somewhat free of harm from avalanches. After the break, Koki relives being trapped in the Himalayan mountainside on her trek up Everest and what she did to stay mentally fit to complete the climb. What did you discover about yourself? That was a lot of solitude at times. That I'm more strategic and patient than I think. I was very strategic on mountain. I, I went to Everest knowing that one of the most important things to do was to protect my confidence, to not overtaxing myself and, and consistently being um, finishing strong that day. You talked about being um, trapped for a while. What, was it five days? How long were you guys trapped? We, um, we hit a storm um, on our last move up the mountain uh, when we advanced to Camp 3. And we were probably stuck at Camp 3 one or two days longer than anticipated. So at Camp 3, two to three days. And then we moved in that storm, which was a really incredible call by our very gifted team to say, you know what, it's either we move up or we're done. And the move up through that storm was so much better than sitting in the tent during the storm. And it actually, you know, cleared a little bit. And then um, we hit camp four and thankfully um, the weather cleared after we hit camp four and we had a very small 12 hour window. I don't think anyone 
uh, summited within three to four or five days after we summited. So weather came back in after that storm as well. So it's a good thing you went. It's a great thing that we moved up the mountain. It was a, it was a very, very professional, calculated uh, call by our guides that was dead on the money. And had they not, I'm here to tell you, we wouldn't have summited. Now, was that part scary, going during the storm? It wasn't. Uh, again, uh, my love language is moving my body, and I would rather move, um, you know, move through a storm than than sit in a tent through a storm. Um, and and um, the storm had lightened up by that point, so it wasn't too bad moving through it. We sort of moved up and over it a little bit. Now, for those days, you were sort of locked in. What do you do? Play cards. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not at Camp 3 because you don't carry the weight. Right. Right? So you don't have your favorite journal. You know, really what you have with you is your iPhone. And the scarier part of that is, is my iPhone is my, my, is my Kindle. My iPhone is my journal. My iPhone are my pictures. My iPhone is my lifeline via my Garmin to my family. And um, But if you've been stuck in a storm for three to four days like we were, we didn't have any solar, so we couldn't recharge our phones. And, and the, the cold zaps your battery quite quickly. So we would sleep with our phones on our bodies and conserve um, the phone power just as much as possible. Oh, I didn't mention that, you know, it was like absolutely perfunctory for me to listen to some music to go to sleep at night. And so that was daunting, the idea of my iPhone dying and not having, you know, a fallback to be able to help me go to sleep or help me rest and relax. Um, to really answer your question, there's lots that we do. And I'm happy to say that I executed my highest ever perfect day exercise <laughs> with a climbing with a climbing partner at you know 23,000 feet. We executed the full perfect day process and that helped me. I moved I, I worked through the perfect day process myself, which I often do when I take others through it. But um, I helped someone else walk through perfect day process, and it occupied us for hours. So <laughs> now, that was fun. For, for people who don't know what that is, can you give us a brief description of that? Well, perfect day is what brought me to alpine climbing. In 2003, I sat down and wrote my very first perfect day. As, as you know, I was ushered to that by you know a coach and a mentor. And what hit the page was that I was going to climb the seven summits of the world. I'd never climbed a mountain in my life, so I didn't know what that was all about. But one foot in front of the next, and 18 years later, I've, I've summited Everest. So I've, I have taken that process that Claire you know, brought to my life, and I've made a little bit of it my own. And I've introduced that into my, my consulting and my financial practice. So... I walk my clients through how to create perfect days in their lives because when they come to me, it's typically all about money. How do I make more money? How do I optimize portfolio? How do I plan to retire? How do I sell my business? And what I acutely know after 24 years of helping others manage money and, and build um, a portfolio for retirement, I know that it's not all about the money. So perfect day process is about balancing all those aspects of life that bring you summits, you know, whether big or small, um, in tandem with things that are important, like financial security. What did you discover about yourself? That was a lot of solitude at times. 
that I'm more strategic and patient than I think. Part of my strategy, and I'm, I'm hoping to bring this home to my sea level life, but I was very strategic on mountain. I, I went to Everest knowing that one of the most important things to do was to protect my confidence. And despite the fact that I'm fiercely competitive, what I decided to do to protect my confidence on mountain was to not be worried about being competitive while climbing and be worried about um, if someone came up behind me, for example, in the ice fall and I was slowing them down, I just decided to consistently be the last person on every big move on the mountain. And why that was is I wanted to make sure that consistently I was protecting my confidence and not overtaxing myself and, and consistently being um, finishing strong that day. And that's never really been a part of my MO. Part of my MO is always, number one, do your hardest, work, work, work harder and faster and stronger. And I didn't do that on mountain. And so I didn't know that I really had that, that patience and that strategic side that would really say, I'm going to finish last. And I'll tell you what, it served me very well. I finished last on most of my moves um, up the mountain. Um, and that build, built me a really nice foundation because when it came to summit day, I wasn't last. And when it came to descending and getting off the mountain, I was first, <laughs> truly. <laughs> uh, so I think that that, just that switch in my mind, that um, the striving to be first and better and more um, isn't always a winning strategy. What was it like? I, I don't know where you were in the lineup. Where were you on your team in summiting? Gosh, I would have to do a recap on that, but I would say 11 of us uh, left the tents th that day, uh, 10 of us summited, and I was probably four or five to the top. Did it feel like being on top of the world? You've been on a lot of peaks. How does it compare? I will tell you that oxygen is a beautiful drug. <laughs> <laughs> I've never climbed with oxygen before, and there is no doubt that that is a big part of why I feel that that last day was, was not as hard as I anticipated. Because I've had other summit climbs that um, were much harder, and it was simply because I didn't have oxygen. Um, so, yes, it did feel like I was on top of the world because just the emotions and seeing those around you and, and really knowing that we did it when we came so close. It was so much more likely that we actually weren't going to summit. So um, we took great stock in that. But I will tell you, the oxygen kept me very comfortable at, at 29,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, one of the prettiest peaks you've bagged, so to speak. No question about it. No question about it. We had such beautiful weather for 12 short hours on our summit day that I feel so fortunate that I actually got to see clearly the roof of the world. What's the cold and wind like? How would you describe the storms to people? Uh, interestingly enough, um, the, the battering of the tent with the 40 to 50 mile an hour winds was quite calming to me. It was more of the still and being stuck in a tent that was 
that my body didn't like as much. So, so almost that, that, that white noise, if you will, of, of the battering of the tent kind of calmed me. Um, so that's, um, that was super fortunate because it's not that way for most. Um, I have to ask you, a few times I've been um, on glaciers, I was surprised by the sounds, the popping and the cracking, almost like lightning. What's it sound like? I only had a few moments um, moving across um, from Camp 1 to Camp 2 where you may have heard some noises. Um, and I've experienced that before um, on mountains. I've experienced before just skiing in Colorado um, with that, that shift in the, in the floor below you, if you will. The Koki that came back, is she the same? You know, that's, that's hard because I'm not the same, but yet everyday life is, is absolutely the same as it's ever been. I mean, so externally, I'm the same person, um, but internally there, there is a shift because I have something that no one can ever take from me. And I've loved having experienced this previously, but never to this uh, profound of a level. But the climbers that I take to the roof of Kilimanjaro, that's the biggest thing I wanted them to take away with them. And I tell them, because some of these girls are 10 years old, and I say, you will always have this. And no matter what happens in life, you've summited Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest peak in Africa, and no one can ever take that from you. And there's moments you can pull on that. So while um, you know everyday life is absolutely the same with Koki, um, I will tell you as I've integrated, and this is just by way of example, um, I've, I've integrated the gym back in my life. Um, it's you know 100 degrees here in Charleston, and I still you know am craving and trying to figure out how to move my body again. Um, and so even being in the gym and being in a hard class and here I've just summited Everest and yet I can't make it through a, you know, certain cardio class <laughs> and I draw back into my mind and I say, just take it easy. You, you know, you, you know, you just climbed Everest. You're good. You know, so, so it's, it's helping me, um, take, um, a little bit of the medicine that I've given some of those other climbers of, you can't take this from me. So I'm still keeping that in the back of my mind of, when I'm struggling or everyday life isn't um, exactly as, as we might want, um, just remembering that, no, I've done something tough. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through it. So it's nice to have that. In the last segment, Koki and Dawn chat about the importance of having big dreams, relating that to cancer patient journeys and what's next for her after summiting Everest. It just took my breath just to be able to be reunited with my family again, which was something... I had to be mentally prepared to not happen before I left. So that surrender of, of giving that up and then being rewarded with actually being allowed to come home and be reunited with my family was um, one of the most special moments I've ever had. Talk to me, Koki, a little bit about dreams. I know some of our cancer survivors have a hard time. It's hard to get through treatment. It's hard to keep pushing forward. What's the importance of dreams and why is it critical that people have them. It, it, it's, it's almost what I'm going through right now. It's a little anticlimactic that here I've climbed Everest and it's like, what's next? It's very important to have your what's next, which is, I think, what you're speaking of in terms of dreams. Yeah. And without it, uh, we can feel rudderless. 
So it's, it's ever important um, to have what your next is. And it doesn't have to be Everest. It just, you just need to know your next. Um, so super critical. And, you know, what's powerful, uh, we talked about writing a perfect day. What's powerful about writing a perfect day is you don't ever have to revisit it. Um, because it's really interesting what actually comes true with what you put on the page. So you can put it on the page and walk away. And like I said, 18 years later, I'm, I'm alpine climbing and uh, climbing the seven summits of the world. So I never thought it would be possible. So you don't have to know. You just put it on the page, you dream the dream, and you see what comes true. When you came back um, into the airport, it was a very emotional moment. Can you recreate that scene for us and tell us why that was so? Gosh, I, you know, as hard as it was being stuck in a tent on Camp 3 and 4 on the world's tallest mountain in these storms, and I thought I would never get home, I actually never thought I would get home because Kathmandu and Nepal had shut down flights in and out, and so I really almost couldn't even fly home to my family. Uh, so <laughs> the idea of the fact that I actually got a flight out, um, and when I landed in Charleston, I had had that, that visual in my mind on so many sleepless nights of just rounding that bend at the terminal in Charleston and, and seeing my family. And, um, when it actually came true and I rounded that bend and I saw them, it just, um, it just took my breath just to be able to be reunited with my family again, which was something... I had to be mentally prepared to not happen before I left. Um, so that surrender of, of giving that up and then being rewarded with actually being allowed to come home and be reunited with my family was um, one of the most special moments I've ever had. It was pr the, pr the best part of the climb was probably being reuni reunited with my family at home. Cookie, you've recreated yourselves in some ways. I mean, you got home in time to celebrate your first wedding anniversary. Mm. Tell, tell me a little bit about this journey. You know, it's almost just another day in the life. Um, business as usual here, out, here at the farm and with, um, you know, managing blended families. And every day we have our own summit <laughs> here in Allendale, South Carolina. Um, and... I do believe that the mountains make us stronger and it's, it's nice to have the admiration of my girls and my husband, um, and just their appreciation. And, and then in return, just my appreciation and gratitude for all their support in supporting me in this endeavor. So what'd you do for your first wedding anniversary? It was Memorial Weekend, and we celebrated in many different ways, but I will just tell you, we put our feet in the sand on Sullivan's Island. It was a very simple day. That's exactly what you needed. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Hollings Cancer Center, we really appreciate all that you've done, and... Um, you know, raising money through your campaign every day, Everest. How did it help knowing that you had people behind you supporting you during your summit? It was more critical than any climb I've ever been on. You know, climbing is a, in some people's minds, they call it a selfish sport, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, in a lot of ways, um, a very independent sport. Um, and I will tell you more than ever, 
I relied so heavily upon the support and prayers and the following um, from the messages I got on my Garmin to messages relayed to me from my team here at home. That support made me know I was not alone and it was not just, you know, a singular independent endeavor. Um, in the times when it got super tough, had I been on that mountain and it had just been for me, I can tell you I wouldn't have kept going. Now, for people who may not have heard of your Everyday Evers campaign, can you explain why you reached out to Hollings to make that connection? I knew um, as I continued on this path of the seven summits, I knew if I was going to climb Everest, which I really all along never intended to do just because of the risks and the danger and the time away and all things herein. Uh, I knew if I was going to do it, I needed to leverage it for something bigger than myself. And um, it was clear to me that it was cancer. Cancer has affected um, the Helens, you know, before me. And I, and I like to think of it as um, something I was trying to pay forward for my girls um, and, and not just, not just women in my life, but, but all of those, um, individuals who are striving for perfect days and striving to do more for themselves, but yet the, the, the one thing that they're not doing is prioritizing their health. And so that's what committing to Hollings, um, for this campaign and Everyday Everest was about for me. It was about, saying, not only do I want to summit, but I'm hoping this soundbite will, um, you know, cross the globe and cross South Carolina and empower people to say, I might not climb Everest, but I can take the health pledge and I can commit to putting myself first, um, which is, could just simply mean um, getting a colonoscopy or, or, or keeping your mammogram appointment. And I recognize that that's a summit certain days for certain people. Um, so it was very important and critical to me to feel like the hard work and all of the support um, for me going up this mountain actually will continue for years because I still talk about every single person who congratulates me for summoning. I say, that's great and I appreciate it, but have you taken the health pledge? So what's next for you? After Everest, I mean, where do you go? <laughs> oh, what's next? It's, it's a day in the life here at the farm. I'm managing <laughs> eight kids, eight baby goats that we just, nine actually as of this morning that we birthed in seven days. So what's next is managing our, our small batch goat dairy uh, here in Allendale. It's because it, we just doubled our herd, um, which was a little bit of a shock coming off of Everest. Um, but, um, I say that, um, that is next, but what is also next is, uh, my girls will be climbing what will most likely be my seventh summit in Australia, uh, Mount Kosciuszko, um, uh, next summer. So I think when people typically ask what's next, they mean what, what, what's the next mountain? Um, I still have Mount Vinson and, um, and Kosciuszko in Australia to go. There's a saying I have that mountains lie, and when you, whatever that mountain may be, fill in the blank, but physically when I approach a mountain and I look up, that mountain lies to me and it says, you can't climb me, this is too hard, there's no way you can get all the way up here, and invariably I summit invariably you can do it, and I feel like there's so many things in everyday life, whether it's keeping your mammogram appointment that, oh, I'm too busy, there's no way I can get there. 
or working, going through a, a cardio class or a new exercise regime, like it's too hard. It's, that's what I mean by protecting your confidence is just continually being, um, you know, calling on this level of self-care that's compassionate and kind to yourself and says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And it's okay. And giving yourself permission to, to fail and get up and go at it again. Um, so protecting your confidence is, is not allowing that, um, I joke and I tease with people. There's like a Leslie liar that speaks to all of us, that little person in your head that says you can't climb that mountain or the mountain saying you can't climb me. And we, I say, tell Leslie liar to go away. And so protecting your confidence is getting that is, is honing and, and being closer with that other voice in your head that says, yes, you can. And I can imagine that that might resonate to Holling's patients because I can't imagine getting a cancer diagnosis and having to deal with the effects of um, whether it's just your whole life being upended and um, between surgeries and or radiations or chemo and not feeling well and managing family and managing finance and managing uh, doctor care um, I can imagine that um, there's a voice constantly in your head of, I just want to give up and I, I, I don't want to go through another day. And so I think protecting your confidence is just continuing to tell yourself, yes, you can. And following your path. And, you know, I remember doing the Grand Canyon with a friend of mine and we looked up and it looked like there was, there was no way to get to the top and you couldn't see the path. And we just resolved to keep moving forward, but, and then it, and the path appeared. So I, I like what you said about keeping moving, just taking that next step forward. Do you find that's true? Absolutely. Um, one foot in front of the next, and just what's my next step? You don't have to think about a week out, a month out, or two days out on the climb. It's I just need to protect my confidence with this next step and, and keep going. What would you like people to do with the Everyday Evers campaign? Take the health pledge. I think that that's an evergreen ask. And while um, Hollings is, is well-deserved and while we're still raising money um, for cancer awareness um, and, and bringing um, education and, and um, cancer prevention to the underserved, um, I do think it's critical and evergreen that those who take the health pledge what I love about it is it doesn't just mean today and it doesn't just mean this year. I feel like when people um, wake up three years from now, they're going to say, oh, yes, I, I forgot. I would committed to doing the health pledge three years ago. And yes, I need to reprioritize and put myself first. So I'm hoping that taking the health pledge is something that follows through with campaign supporters and their friends and family for a very long time that just encourages them to say, whoops, I missed my mammogram this year, or I haven't had my colonoscopy, um, or a skin check, you know, fill in the blank. Um, so I'm hoping that that just continues for years to come. It's okay. We just have to say thank you again. We can't appreciate how much you've done for MUC Hollings Cancer Center and the awareness that you've brought to other people. One last question I have for you. I took a photography class and it forever changed how I saw the world. I saw light in a different way. I saw everything differently. How has Everest changed the way you see the world? I don't know if I should answer it through the lens, uh, through a camera lens, but that's, that's, that's where I'll start. 
in that you can't capture it. What, what you see, you can't capture on film. Um, you can do your best, but those moments are just being present and taking in what's happening and what's happening around you and what you're seeing. You can take a picture of it, but it's, it never measures up. So just having been there and having had the endeavor and showing up is 100% of it. Um, having a picture memento is nice, but I just know that the, the camera never does me justice. I like the part about just showing up. Do you find you're more joyful? Oh, you know, I think that I'm a little bit, quite honestly, in unpacking land. And I don't mean physically with my bags. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a little um, anticlimactic, you know, coming home after this endeavor I've worked so hard for with, with two years through COVID. You know, I trained one year, couldn't go, trained another year, got to go. We summited and now I'm home. And, you know, people do ask what's next. And I don't really have a huge what's next right now. And so it's unpacking that and the emotions and the, and the beauty of it all and just that simple life and now being thrown back into technology land and business land and traffic land is, is, is not <laughs> <It's> hard. <laughs> so, so the joy might be a little, a little lacking. It's not to say that I'm not super grateful for the experience, but there is something that a dear friend and fellow climber warned me about called the climber's abyss and how you can experience coming off a big climb like this and knowing that coming down is a lot harder than going up. And so right now I'm just um, relearning how to be kind and compassionate to myself and how to move my body here at sea level and um, finding joy in, in, in all things busy and teenagers. <laughs> Anything else, Koki, you, you might like to add? Supporting Hollings and the medical university was just such a natural fit because I feel so fortunate to have um, MUSC here in our backyard and um, even more fortunate that, yes, we've had our um, trips to the, to the ER at, at the medical university, but not um, the trips of magnitude that many have had to have, whether it's at Hollings Cancer um, or at the Children's Hospital. And so just ever thankful for having such an amazing institution here at our disposal and just paying that forward. So it was a natural fit to to um, bring Hollings into this endeavor of, of wanting to leverage this climb for something bigger than myself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cancer Chat. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MUSC Hollings and visit us online at hollingscancercenter.musc.edu. And remember, here at the Hollings Cancer Center, we're finding tomorrow's cure for cancer today. <laughs>